And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining us on the phone line today is Dr. L. John Van Til. And he is the retired chair and professor of history, professor of business, and professor of humanities at Grove City College. He's also a fellow for Humanities, Faith, and Culture at the Center for Vision and Values. Dr. Van Til, it's an honor to have you on the phone with us today. Well, it's my pleasure, Dan. Uh, We had a good visit earlier, and I look forward to that today. Yeah. Uh, You've just uh, published a book uh, that is entitled Thanking Cal Coolidge, an inquiry into the roots of his intellectual life, and that kind of caught our attention. And I wasn't probably a, a very good student in high school, at least on things about history, but I never recalled hearing much about Calvin Coolidge. Uh, I wonder why that is. To get us started, maybe you can uh, give us a little sketch of his life. When was he president of the United States? Well, I'll, I'll make the context just a little bigger. He was born on July 4, 1872. That's during the second half of the Grant administration. And he lived 61 years and died in March of 1933, and he uh, had certain education. He was born in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. We were there again this summer, and it's about six or seven buildings up in the foothills of the Green Mountains. So that little town is preserved there, a little village. When he was born in 72, the Industrial Revolution hadn't reached it. There wasn't electricity or natural gas or railroad, anything like that. So one writer observed correctly, I think, that he wasn't far removed in the culture he was born in from the Revolution 100 years earlier, 70, 80 years earlier. So that's where he was born in um, kind of central Vermont uh, in 1872. Then he had certain education, and I'll skip the details except to say he was graduated from Amherst College in um, 1895, and I have to point out that Amherst was started uh, as one of many replacements for Harvard when it went belly up on commitment to the Scripture. It started out that way, Harvard did, but by uh, 1800 it had been become Unitarian, and then a number of colleges were started, uh, and they tended to be West, of course. And so Amherst was one of those, and it stayed that way, all the way into the early 20th century. So when he came there in 91, um, it, it was uh, a Christian institution, and they'd struggled with curricular problems, but had done a fine job, really, of maintaining a full commitment to the Scripture. And one professor, Charles Garman, influenced him more than any others, and I discussed that in the book, and that um, started on an intellectual life that was powerful, and it was grounded in the in the scripture, and so that then he became uh, he was active in politics right away as a young man after he read law and passed the bar, and he lived in Northampton his whole adult life, Northampton, Massachusetts, and then he held different offices in the state. He was he ran for office uh, twenty times, and he was elected nineteen times, and the only time he was defeated was one time when he ran a third time for mayor of Northampton, and there was a tradition of um, only two terms. And um, as you saw yesterday in in the 
New Hampshire that people are kind of independent minded. So they said, sorry, Cal, no third term. Well, he never made that mistake again. And then he went on to be elected and elected and elected for everything all the way into the state uh, house and lieutenant governor and governor and vice president in 1920. And then Harding died in 23 on August 2 or 3 in the nighttime, and then Coolidge became president. And he heard that at 2 o'clock in the morning, and his father, who was a notary, swore him in as president in the middle of the night on August 3. And then he served five and a half years, was elected himself, of course. And he could have been elected in 28, but he chose not to run. And it was providential because um, he was never a strong, robust person, but he worked hard. And uh, as it turns out, he he didn't uh, live a lot longer and died in just um, weeks before uh, FDR took office. So 61 years, uh, 1872 to 1933. And he did a lot in those years. Mm. Most people can't place our historical figure, so I thought I'd take a minute and give that context. Well, it's very helpful. And um, in the beginning, I neglected to say that coming up this coming Monday is uh, President's Day, and uh, we often talk about Washington's birthday or or maybe Abraham Lincoln, but um, thought today we'd look at a different president and saw this book about Calvin Coolidge. Um, was uh, Calvin Coolidge, once he became president, would you consider him a faithful president uh, as measured by adherence to the Constitution? Well, the best thing I can say about that is a quotation off the back uh, cover of this book of mine. Uh, I became a student of Paul Johnson, that is to say I read several of his works, and we used his book, Modern Times. He's a British historian. Some years ago in teaching, we used it in our core, Modern Times. And in there, he talks about the 20s at length, and that's what stimulated my interest in Coolidge. And about Coolidge, Paul Johnson said, he was the last American president to fully reflect the views of the founding fathers. And uh, that captures it uh, rather fully. Now, there's one piece. uh, Coolidge wrote many, uh, probably several hundred, essays and formal speeches that are available. I can comment on that. But he um, talked about his principles in there, and so you get a good idea in those writings what he was like. So he was a man of principle, and if you were to ask whether he were Christian, I would say yes, but somebody would say, yeah, but I don't see him or anybody else talking about Christ all the time. Well, he lived in a time and grew up in a culture where most people were Christian, at least nominally, never finally know everybody, I suppose, but uh, he grew up that way, and his, his whole life was uh, based on that. And then what he has to say in his autobiography, which is available, reprinted by the Coolidge Foundation, you can get that on um, Amazon. And he wrote that 35 years after he was out of the classroom, and one of the things he does, he wrote it when he finished, finished his presidency, is he talks about the influence of Professor Garman and how Garman led them to... Uh, a spiritual mountaintop and told them and his classmates all about uh, the significance of God in in their lives. And he uh, looked at that uh, from a personal perspective. He quoted the scripture all the time. And so that deeply influenced his life. And so 
then his wife said that uh, there were two books that were important to Lowell. He had a huge library and read, and he, he quoted things all the time. Uh, one was a collection of writings by this Professor Garvin, and the other was the Bible, and they were always on his nightstand, and he read them every every night before he went to sleep. And he had a habit of praying on his knees uh, before he got in bed. So that says something about him uh, in that regard. Yeah, it really does. And that was one of the questions I had, was he a Christian man? And I think um, sometimes actions speak louder than words, as they say. Well, in his time, there, he had friends and people in government who were Christians, some who weren't, surely. But um, he lived it. There's no question about that. He was his Integrity and character were, were the real marks of the man, and he wrote about that in many of the pieces, that how important those things were. Uh, in in one's life than in his life. So yeah. that touches morality. And in the back of the book, you may have it before you, I'm, I'd like to take a half a minute and read that quotation I put in there from his essay, Things That Are Unseen. And I won't read it too fast because the listeners can pick this up, but it's just powerful and packed. And so I'm reading, quote, We do not need more material development. We need more spiritual development. This is in the middle of his presidency when he wrote this and published it. We do not need more intellectual power. We need more moral power. We do not need more knowledge. We need more character. We do not need more government. We need more culture. We do not need more laws. We need more religion. We do not need more of the things that are seen we need more of the things that are unseen, and that last line was the title of the piece, Things That Are Unseen. So the spiritual world and principles, by that he means the Christian view, those are the things that ultimately were important. And he, he lived through the, uh, the Industrial Revolution really coming to power, and there was a successful materialism in the culture. And he, he publicly, as president, would say, uh, let's not push this materialism too far. We need we need more morality and more spirituality. So um, I, I haven't heard that recently from an American president. <laughs> but maybe Hillary Clinton. I heard her. She's rather shrill. I'll try to be fair in commenting on her style. But she said that she was blessed, and that's about as close as she gets as a candidate <laughs> for that stuff. But we'll we'll not go there anymore. <laughs> well. Um... Calvin Coolidge, then, he was a Christian man, and he had a high view of morality and integrity. What about his actions? Was he a good speaker? Was he able to convince people of his ideas? Yes, he was. Um, I just finished editing. We're getting ready to put them online. I'm, I'm busy finishing up a couple other things, and we're going to put them online. There's two volumes. Uh, well, there's really three. One is still available uh, in the Coolidge Foundation, and you get it on Amazon, publish it, it's called Faith in Massachusetts, and that was campaign speeches, which he uh, he wrote them all himself. Now, nobody ever wrote a word for him in his speaking, and he, he wrote his uh, talks out. And in those days, they talked quite a while, like the Lincoln days, you know, it's before uh, he was the first president to talk on the radio, but most of it was uh, political people would get up and talk a while. And so there's there's two other volumes that were out of print that I noticed when I started doing research oh some years ago. So I resolved to make new editions of them, and I have. And we're just ready to put them online at Vision and Values, 
the Center for Vision and Values at Grove City College. You could go there and find a few things I've written about Coolidge. And then one of his important pieces that I made an appendix in the book you're referring to, Thinking Cal, the inspiration of the Declaration of this one piece that captures the essence of his view of society, government, and the Constitution. It's the inspiration of the Declaration of the speech he delivered on uh, July 5, 1926, and it's July 5 because July 4 was on the Sunday, and in those days public uh, events were not held on Sunday, so on July 5, the day after, on Monday, he gave that. And that is a fairly long piece, and it's available at the Center for Vision and Values, or it's in my book as an appendix. Yeah. And that captures, uh, I put it in there because if you want one piece that captures his outlook, uh, that's it. And so he's very thoughtful and uh, widely read. He quotes the scripture a lot. He quotes uh, other writers. He was a great student of Puritan culture and cited Puritan preachers and in that piece, too. So, well, I've said enough about that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this is interesting. Today we're talking with Dr. L. John Van Til. He's uh, a fellow for Humanities, Faith, and Culture at the Center for Vision and Values. We're talking about the subject of President Calvin Coolidge. What about, was he a big government guy or a limited government? Uh, Any comments about that? Well, um, yes, I, I noticed early on when I started studying him, having read Paul Johnson's uh, section in his book, Modern Times, one phrase caught my attention in reading something. He said, well, we will uh, help the poor temporarily. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was helping the poor, and of course I have antenna for government trying to um, take care of people from cradle to grave, and that that doesn't sit well with me cause, uh, for reasons that you know better than I, no doubt. But it seemed like, oh, what's that? Is that is that a little streak of progressivism? Well, I was aware of that then for a long time as I studied his works and wrote, and uh, there's a couple things to say about it, I think. One, he came to maturity when what we call the progressive movement was well underway, and that you probably date it from just after 1900, uh, probably not before, and then it grows, and you have the contest between Wilson and and then there's Teddy Roosevelt, and and a few years ago we had a conference on progressivism, so I studied that all in great detail, and I come to this conclusion. One, the progressives, uh, the, I would say the original progressive movement there was emerging, and it was a limited, um, people wanted reform, they saw problems, there were plenty of problems that affected culture and society from the Industrial Revolution that went overboard in some regards, and he talked about that. And he liked some of Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, reforms. He thought that industrialists had too much power. And uh, so there was a movement to draw that in. So that was a reform. So some of these uh, adjustments in society were reforms that could be called progressive, but that's different than a whole outlook on life. Uh, like your current president talks about, where or your friend Bernie Sanders 
well, I don't know if he's your friend, but anyway, he's <laughs> one of God's children. But anyway, uh, they talk about wanting to make the government in control of everything, and they call that progressivism. I heard it in the last two nights on the television. Well, that's a wholly different view, where all the power is in the hands of the government, as opposed to the government stepping in temporarily, say, to feed the poor in a depression. So those are two different um, systems of views, and I, I think that would be the way to see it. And, and his desire to make sure the poor didn't go hungry, uh, it's got a kind of Christian motivation, I think. So uh, mm-hmm. it's a limited, probably the term progressive isn't the right word unless you use it in the limited sense for him and some of his friends as opposed to the current people since FDR. Mm-hmm. Well, that quote that you gave from him indicated that um, he wanted relief, but he saw it as a temporary measure. Correct. Yeah, so that makes a big difference. Um, yep. I think the danger is that when uh, government programs, this is my opinion, remain in place permanently, and once they get in place, it seems almost impossible to retract them. Well, I, th- I think that's right, and we've seen that, uh, and that's gotten to be, well, I don't know so, no, something could be more true, but that's more so, it seems to be, in the last 30 years or so than it was 50 or 75 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's kind of endemic in the culture. It flows from the, the New Deal, really, that you want to guarantee uh, nobody has any pain and nobody has to... Uh, uh, work if they don't feel like it, on and on and go. So that's a, that's a, that's a um, more recent idea, and it's it's not helpful. And of course, you get a society of dependence, which we have now. And of course, the big problem now is: are we at the turning point where those of us who work have to support those who don't work, and they can vote our money away to help them to not work? We're close to that in this society. That's what you're talking about. It seems to me. Yeah, that's the concern. Um, let's talk more about Cal Coolidge and his intellect. It seems that um, from what little I've read, people may not have a good opinion of Cal, uh, or you know, he's not talked about much, or if he is, that um, maybe they downplay his intellect, and that's something you've really focused on. So what did you find as you dug into his life? Well, um, the first motivation was the fact that the the historian said so little about him when I first started looking into it. And then I realized, as Paul Johnson really said, that that sent me off studying, Mm -hmm. is the New Deal historians have written the history of this period and their students. The textbooks today, these poor students in most colleges and surely the public institutions today, uh, if they study in American history, the books are written by New Deal historians and their and their their students. In other words, we're second or third generation, and so there's a kind of uh, pattern that takes place. They they see all the wonders of early progressivism through Wilson, and then then the twenties are an interlude, and then you got FDR and those who followed them who are progressive, and they were important people, and so they see the twenties. When Coolidge was president, along with uh, Harding first and then Hoover at the end, uh, they see that as a, an aberration. Well, 
he dominated the 20s. He was the most popular politician in the 1920s when he ran for uh, lieutenant governor in 1918 or 19 in Massachusetts. He, he out the governor candidate twice in a row, and then then he was elected him, himself as president in uh, 24 with a plurality that was never passed until possibly Lyndon Johnson in the uh, his full election. Mm-hmm. So he was a very popular person. He spoke all the time. He wrote all the time. And uh, when he uh, retired, um, he just didn't run again in 28. Then he continued to write, and he was offered to, to to write a column in the newspaper, and he was paid a small fortune for it. And everybody wanted to know what does Coolidge say. So he was the most popular politician. Now his voice was not um, the most lucid, they say, uh, a little high pitched. He, he was a smaller man, and all that. But what he had to say was powerful, and that's what I tried to show in this book. So I talk about his intellectual roots. And they're in his studies at Amherst, and then he continued that, and he read literature as well as history, very knowledgeable in history, going way back. And so uh, he may well have been the most educated man, even though Woodrow Wilson had a Ph.D. and was the only uh, president with that degree, because they were a cheaper degree in those days. But, uh, you know, he wrote a long essay and got a doctorate, but it's a little more in most places today. Oh, I think it's deteriorating again, but that's another subject. <laughs> but anyway, he he was he was a, a literate man and a very knowledgeable man, but a clear writer and speaker. And so he was in much demand to speak, and he went all over to speak as vice president for a couple of years. He he was always out speaking, and most of those have been published. So but, um, I started to say earlier and didn't finish it up. There's a have faith in Massachusetts as a series of speeches in nineteen published in nineteen nineteen. Then in twenty four and twenty six he published two additional volumes of his speeches and they are called The Price of Freedom and Foundations of the Republic. And those are the ones that I've made new editions of and will be online at Vision and Values. I suppose we'll make it in six months because I still have other things that I'm working on. So if anybody reads that you say you just say, well, this is a small education to to read him. So yeah. uh, now how he squares up that way with other presidents, we don't know, because, at least I don't, because I'm not aware of other studies of the intellectual life of any of our presidents, maybe Lincoln. Um, and, of course, there's studies of Adams, uh, John, and you know, Jefferson, and there's lots of books, but they tend not to focus on their on their thought life or the structure of it. And that's what I've talked about with Coolidge here. And um, I'm in that tradition, in uh, the Reformed tradition, where we, we think worldview is important. And that's something we brought to Grove City College years ago that's important there, too. But we don't have those kind of studies of the presidents. Maybe, maybe Lincoln. And let me just say to your listeners, if they take out a minute today or tomorrow, the next day, and they Google Lincoln's second inaugural. It seems to me I might have mentioned this to you before. It's a brief talk, his second inaugural, but the second half it just oozes with Lincoln's concern for how he wants to do God's will. Mm. And he said both sides pray to the same God, and both sides think God is on their side, and he says, I want to be on God's side. And that's 
what you find in the mature Lincoln. That that's a kind of reflection of a Christian view that you see in Lincoln, and of course that's what we see in Coolidge. Mm. Well, today we've been talking with Dr. L. John Van Til. He is a fellow for Humanities, Faith, and Culture at the Center for Vision and Values, taught many years at Grove City College. And I'm looking at the clock, Dr. Van Til, and I realize we've already run out of time. If someone wants to check up on this book, I do know that you can order it online at Amazon. The title of the book is Thinking Cal Coolidge, An Inquiry into the Roots of His Intellectual Life. And Dr. Van Til, thank you so very much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure and blessings. Same to you. And uh, if our listeners have a question, by all means, email us, and I'll send along your question to Dr. Van Til. The email address here at the station is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. And please join us next week at this same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. 